0: It's so good to have you with us. Um, as I just looked around there, just before coming up, I was just looking around the room thinking, it is just amazing to be part of a, a people kind of united by that common conviction of the glory of the Lord. Um, I just, it's amazing to be back together and worshipping. Um, will you turn with me to Exodus chapter 7? We are in for a treat. We are looking at this uh, great moment in the book of Exodus. We've done a few messages on Exodus. Um, I think it's the fourth one. And each time we've been looking at this, this story of deliverance, of freedom that the people of Israel find. They're in slavery under Pharaoh and they find liberation. And today we're going to look at ten, or we're going to look at nine of them today, ten mighty acts of judgment. We're going to look at the plagues, the, the moment when Pharaoh is resisting Moses and resisting uh, giving the people of Israel freedom. And so God visits upon him acts of judgment. But I want to start by asking you a question today, and that question is really simple. It's, what is the overall goal and ambition of your life? What is the goal and ambition of your life? Think for a moment. I've asked some of you that question before. What is the ambition of your life? For some of you, maybe where you're at in life, you're thinking, I want to settle down. I want to find a place to put roots down and say, this is where I live. And I've, I've, I've been build community and all the other things that are important in life. For some of you, it might be to get to a certain place in your career. For some of you, there may be some kind of spiritual impact that you're envisioning. Maybe for some of you, it's starting a family. We've got all different goals, and none of those goals are wrong. But I want to suggest to you this morning a bigger goal, a goal which in a sense should encompass all of those goals. And that is to glorify the Lord, to live for the glory of the Lord. Now, that may feel like an alien concept when I say, what does it mean to to live for the glory of the Lord? Well, the glory of God is, one writer put it as the beauty, majesty and greatness of God. The beauty, the majesty and the greatness of God. In other words, the godness of God, The the very thing that makes God, God. We saw it in Isaiah. We're going to see it in this passage. Today we are confronted with the glory of God, his majesty and splendor as he pronounces these great acts of judgment on Pharaoh. As we do that, as we see the majesty of, uh, and the glory of God, the, the, the question that hangs over this passage is what will you do with that? What will you do? How will you respond to the great majesty of God? To when you see his power And his supremacy, when you see his his glory, how will you respond? And I want to suggest to you that, that our very purpose, the essence of our being is to enjoy his glory, to enjoy his majesty, to recognize it and to point to it with every part of our lives. I want to read, actually before I do that, I want to suggest to you that this is a battle for glory. This moment, this set of plagues that we're about to read, we're not going to read all of it, it's three chapters long, it would take us a long time. This is a battle for glory. This is the living God revealing his glory, saying, I have the right to tell you to release my people. I am the great majesty of the universe. And then we have Pharaoh contesting that, rejecting that, saying, no, who are you? In fact, we saw that in uh, chapter five when he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? So Pharaoh's kind of saying, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? He's contesting God's glory. And what we see in these plagues is God's answer. Saying, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you why you should listen to me. I'm going to reveal my mighty hand to you. So this is a question of authority. Who has the right to decide the fate of Israel? Who is in charge? And what I want to suggest to you really is that that is the great battle of your life. This great battle for glory is not just a story, a moment 3,000 years ago that feels irrelevant to our lives. This confrontation between Pharaoh and God is the very battle of every person's life. Will you recognize the great glory and supremacy of God or will you resist him and face judgment? That is the pregnant question underneath this story. So what happens then? We've got 10 plagues, nine, we're gonna look at just nine of them today and there's three rounds of three. They get progressively worse as each time the Lord reveals his power and authority to Pharaoh. Pharaoh resists and then the Lord raises the temperature. Pharaoh resists and he raises the temperature. We're gonna start at Exodus chapter seven. We're gonna read the initial encounter. Exodus chapter seven, verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent." So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. So these great high priests, these magicians, are somehow able to replicate what Aaron does. But this is the key. But Aaron's staff... Swallowed up their staffs. God will show his supremacy. He is mightier than Pharaoh and anything else to throw at him. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so we come to the first plague, the, the, where the Lord turns the Nile into blood. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that's turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. It's a command. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary or basically they won't be able to drink of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hands over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water of the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians or the kind of high priests of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Note, by the way, they're only able to replicate this. They're not able to turn it back. Even here we see their impotence. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink and they could for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So they find some other way of finding water. Note, by the way, as I read this first plague, there's a sense in some of you that this just feels supernatural. This feels almost too, it feels implausible to our Western um, materialistic ears, to which I think we have to say, first of all, you kind of have to remove that kind of anti-supernatural bias that we just kind of imbibe in the culture we live in. Why? Because the whole point is that this is miraculous. When you read this, when you see the miracles in the, in, the, in the Gospels, you can't turn them into some kind of naturalistic thing that can be explained away in some other way. And you'll see as the rest of the, in the rest of the plagues, you can't explain these away as some kind of natural phenomenon. The whole point is they are supernatural. We are seeing the power of the living God. They're extraordinary. That's the point. So we see the first plague, the is turned to blood. Then we see frogs, multitude of frogs. We see gnats, the dust gets turned to gnats. We see flies uh, t- um, taking over the land and destroying things. We see livestock. We see the animals of the people of Egypt uh, killed. Actually, notice the Israel, the people of Israel, their livestock stays alive. We see boils. We see uh, so many boils on the, on the people of Egypt that they can't even stand in Pharaoh's presence. You heard those magicians, those high priests who may be able to replicate it? Well, by the time we get to the boils, they've been humiliated. They've got boils all over them. They can't even stand in God's presence. In Pharaoh's presence. And then we come to hail. I want to read to you the the seventh plague, which is hail. Chapter 9, verse 13. And then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord of the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. He's saying you're still resisting my authority. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall as such has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of, the, of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the fields. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down on the earth. And the Lord read hail on the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field. In all of the land in Egypt both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant and field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. And then, the Pharaoh, then Pharaoh goes to Moses and, and calls him and basically says, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done. You can withdraw it. And then so then Moses uh, ceases the plague. And of course, Pharaoh then reneges. Verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then we go on and see locusts and finally darkness. We won't look at the last plague today. What you've got to see really in this big picture, I know it's taken us a while to get it through it. What you've got to see is this great decreation. This great act of destruction on the land of Egypt. The great humiliation and mockery on these who would resist the authority of the living God. But when we read those plagues, the first question I think which comes to everybody's mind is, why? Why does God do this? He could have stopped in a moment, couldn't he? He could have just killed Pharaoh and his people would have been free. This is the point you've got to go to. When you go to verse 16... In fact, he literally says that for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you had been cut off from the earth. He basically says, I could have done this in a moment. I could have killed you. But no, for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's great goal. In this moment and in all of creation is that the whole world would see his glory and his majesty. That is why he goes great lengths to humiliate the Pharaoh and all those who oppose him. Because he wants to see his supremacy. He wants to see that he is in charge. And you have to look when you see this great contest and decide which side are you on. Are you going to live for the glory of God? Are you going to recognize and live for that reality? Or are you going to resist his authority and ignore his glory? Now, when you, read the, when you read this, I think most of you say, well, I don't want to be on Pharaoh's side. He's vain. He's proud. He's stubborn. He's no, who, would, who would be on Pharaoh's side? I want to suggest to you that that is, unfortunately, the great reality that we see in our world. That many are on Pharaoh's side. That this great contest is going on in the heart of every human being. Humanity is always faced with an option. Will you recognize the glory of the living God? Will you live for his glory? Or will you obstinately refuse and deny his majesty? We see that all the way through the Bible. We see that in the serpent, in the Garden of Eden, when the serpent says to, uh, you will be like God, to, uh, to Eve. Even there, we see that uh, desire to glorify, the, glorify man. In, in Babel, in, when, when uh, they, the, they try to build a big tower to their own glory and majesty, Or every time the people of God refuse to listen to God, they're effectively asserting their own majesty. This is the great story of humanity. This is the great story of our world, that we live, that we seek to maximize our glory rather than the glory of the living God. This week, the European Super League, a number of different billionaires got together to maximize their wealth and to display their glory in the world. But it's not just the, the very highest of our society, who among us is not looking for some recognition, some kind of version of glory, whether it be in a meeting where you're wanting to be the person to say, I, I came up with that contribution, or, you know, or maybe you're having, having a debate with your colleague, but you don't really care about the answer, but you just want to basically prove that you're right. Those who've been in meetings with me will know that's a, a regular reality. There's... What I'm trying to say is that it is inbuilt in the, in the heart of humanity to desire our own glory, to resist the glory of the Lord. And we see that in this passage, to miss the very central purpose of our lives, to enjoy and display the glory of God, to be a mirror reflecting his glory to the world. And so what I want you to do today is hear, the, see the supremacy of God, to recognise his supremacy. To see the foolishness of Pharaoh and his great resistance, his proud resistance to that glory. And then ultimately to see what does it mean to live for the glory of God. So then what does it mean, first of all, to recognize the supremacy of God? These plagues stand as a visible declaration of the glory of God. He is completely victorious over his enemies, over Pharaoh, the high priest, and as we'll see, the Egyptian deities. As we see his majesty, we must hear the implicit call to obedience. See, what you have to see is that these plagues are a victory over the Egyptian gods. This is not some great senseless act of destruction, of of just kind of like randomly destroying different things to to put the Egyptians in their place. No, this is a great rebuke to the Egyptian deities, to the uh, pantheon of Egyptian gods or idols that they worshipped. Numbers thirty-three. It describes as the Lord has brought judgment on their gods. This moment, the the, the plagues, they're humiliated. They're mocked. that like God is basically saying, they cannot save you. You see this all the way through. The first, in the first plague we looked at, the, the Nile. The Nile had kind of almost divine property for the Egyptians. Like many pre-modern societies, they worshipped different what we might call forces of nature, different things that, that they would say were essential to their survival. And the Nile was one of them. Uh, one Egyptian hymn said this, everything that has come into being is through the Nile's power. There is no district of living men without him. The Nile was the source of all life. I mean, you can even see that geographically in Egypt, where the Nile is the reason that people can live there. But what do we see? The living God is saying, this great source of life becomes the source of death. It becomes blood. Blood represents death. We see this great humiliation in every single plague, the frogs that follows. Well, the frogs were a symbol of fertility. They were a sign of um, a kind of sacredness that that you couldn't kill frogs. It was a sense to which um, the gods would control the number of frogs. And to which the living God says, no, they don't control the number of frogs. I control the number of frogs. I am sovereign. And so uh, in, in fact, in dramatic fashion, he multiplies the frogs, and then when they say, no, 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 we relent, he kills the frogs. There's piles of stinking frogs all around as a testimony to the living God's power and the humiliation of these gods who are meant to be able to control the number of go- uh, frogs on the land. So we see this in the frogs. We see this in the insects, the, the different way that they, were, they, ha- they believed there were gods who would uh, protect them and provide for their crops. And actually, of course, we see their crops are decimated by the, by the infestation. We see this in the sun, in the sun, the sun god. The last the last uh, miracle, the last plague before uh, the tenth plague. The ninth plague is um, the the darkness. It goes on for three days. And this is actually an attack on the king of the Egyptian deities known as Amon-Ra. The, the, this, go, this god was the god of sun. The, the, he provided the sun. And, and actually, uh, one writer put it like this. Uh, every morning, the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed the life-giving power of Amon-Ra. So basically, every day the sun rose, it was saying, Amon-Ra is providing for us. The king is, our, is, our, is, is sovereign, of which the living God says, no, he's not. Three days in darkness. As they sit there in darkness, that darkness represents kind of death to them. He's saying, this God who you rely on, I've I've, I've effectively killed him for three days. Even the magicians, the high priests who who Pharaoh draws on initially to kind of replicate these miracles, because that's what they are, miracles, then by the time they get to the boils, they're so ridden with boils, they can't even stand in Pharaoh's presence. It's a humiliation of the gods. It's a humiliation of a high priest. It's a humiliation of Pharaoh himself. He was known as the one who would keep some kind of divine order in the universe. He was a kind of divine figure who would mean that they would in, uh, enable to flourish as a, as, a, as a society. What does he do? He desecrates the society. He destroys their society. There's, their crops are destroyed. Their livestock are killed. Um, Pharaoh is humiliated. There's no order here. This is disorder. In fact, uh, if you imagine uh, in pre-modern society, in this society, they thought of uh, the world on three levels. They saw it as the ground, the, the flesh, and the heavens. And if you watch the miracles, you see that the first three are, the, are a humi- uh, an attack on the, on the ground. The next three are on the flesh, and the final three are on the heavens. They come from the heavens. So each one of these times, God is saying, you know these, these stories in the house? I'm the Lord of all. This is my house, not your house. These gods are nothing compared to me. These gods cannot save you. You know, they would have given offerings and and they would have believed that if we just live for these gods, then they will care for us, which God says, no, don't fear them, fear me. I am the Lord of all. Don't you see the application for us? First of all, the challenge, to the way we so often take on idolatry in our lives, how we cling to false gods who can't save us. Like the Egyptians, we cling on to all sorts of other things that, uh, that allow us to kind of cope with the inherent uncertainties of this life. The, the fact that you, know, you could go do, walk down tomorrow and be hit by a car. The fact that every, there is just anxiety and uncertainty written into the universe. You can't control the future. And so what happens as human beings is we, we find certain things to cling on to to, to, to kind of in some way control the future. To be able to set, tell ourselves it will be okay, to speak to our fears. Now, actually, of course, we're meant to cling on to the living God, to trust him and to believe that he is good. But instead, we have to cling on to all sorts of other things to tell ourselves that the future will be OK. The most obvious one of these is money. The way, isn't it so clear so often that you can see that kind of underlying um, attempt in, in the way we, the way we relate, relate to money actually reveals a kind of um, hope we hope that by accruing a certain amount of wealth, maybe a nest egg or a pension or whatever, I'm not saying savings wrong, but the way we can so often approach money through the lens of, will this, this will be my security, my refuge, my way of being able to control the future. If I, if I just have enough, then come what may, I'll be able to cope and respond to the calamities of life. To which we say, that's rubbish. You may go through all sorts of suffering in your life that money can do nothing to against. You may experience the sickness of a spouse or the reality of your immortality. Money cannot rescue you. In a sense, like there may be just a moment when you know, a calamity falls, like the way the Nile is turned to blood here, where, the money, where your money is, is lost in all sorts of different ways. Money is fragile. It's easily ripped out of our hands. A new bill comes along. A job is lost. All sorts of things. If you cling to these things, they will, you, will, you will lose your security just like they do here. And, of course, it doesn't solve your fears, does it? Because you, if you end up looking to money or anything else to kind of tell yourself that, you'll have a, that, if, um, that your future is secure, well, then you're always worrying about how much money you have. So, actually, instead of worrying about the future, you end up worrying about this idol, worrying about the crop god, the, the way the Egyptians would have worried about whether their crop god would provide for them. And so you get into patterns of worship, of thinking about money all the time. That's kind of like a version of adoration or sacrificing your time, or maybe even just lacking generosity because you're worried about the future and you're worried about the money that you have. What you need to see here, this, these pl- the, the, the great judgment on these plagues says to us, your money and your job are not your provider, the living God is. Don't trust in those vain idols that can be ripped away from you at any moment. Trust in the living God. Trust him and believe that he is good. But the real, I think the, this, this, these plagues speak even deeper to us. Really, you've got to see this great demonstration of the Lord's glory is a challenge to obedience. The thrust of the plagues is don't you see my majesty, my supremacy? It deserves your obedience. The great battle of the Christian life is who is sovereign. Who is sovereign? Just as this great battle is between God and Pharaoh, who has the right to tell the people of Israel whether they can go or not? Just as it is a fundamental battle of sovereignty, so too we experience a battle of sovereignty in our own lives every day. Now, in one sense, the battle of sovereignty is settled when we become a Christian, when we give our lives to Christ. We're saying, you are sovereign, But of course we know that under the surface then, for the rest of our lives, there's a a tug of war between the flesh and the spirit. It may not be very conscious, we may not feel like it, but the reality is this battle of sovereignty, I think it's going on in every, every person who follows Christ. Every time you're tempted to sin, every time you're tempted to just kind of shrug off the demands of Christ, or every time you unconsciously or consciously are kind of resisting his will for your life, in some way that's a resistance of his sovereignty. Whether that's open defiance or subtly justifying why you ignore his commands. Whether it's choosing to go down that anxiety rabbit hole rather than saying, no, I trust that you are good. Whether it's uh, choosing to believe the the lies about who you are rather than believing the Lord's verdict of who you are, which is so easy to do. All of that is in a a sense, a kind of version of rejecting his sovereignty. This battle for sovereignty is going on in all of our lives Ultimately, we're, we're so, so prone to making ourselves Lord. But what you've got to hear in this story is the great fuel for the battle, that tug of war going on in your heart, is to glimpse, to, re, to see again the great glory of God. Just in this passage, as, the kind of, as we're seeing his glory, it should help us. To, to, to kind of take on and remember, to consciously remember that we are men and women under authority, a good and loving authority, but men and women under the authority of God. Just think how you would have felt as you stood under that shelter, watching the hail come down and destroy these plants and, and different things, the, the whole ecosystem in Egypt. Just think how you would have felt. What would your reaction be as you look at that? Surely it would be one of awe. Surely it would be one of, oh my gosh, how can I resist the voice of this one who speaks with such power and authority, who destroys this land before our eyes? That, that sense of awe, that sense of wonder at his majesty, is, that is what we call the fear of God. That's got to be there in our lives, hasn't it? It's got to be in our hearts as we seek to make him sovereign. If we don't have that, then it's very hard to recognize and live under his sovereignty. Now, it's not a, a craven fear. It's not a kind of, uh, oh, I don't like God. I've got to stay away from him. I can't come into his presence. It's not that. It's the, it's, it's a, there's a childlike fear. There's a sense of reverence and the conviction of his loving goodness. So the great fuel is the the knowledge of his majesty and glory. How often we need to come back to his glory. How often we need to kind of, just like Isaiah in chapter six, come and glimpse his majesty again to remind ourselves that why we're living under his authority. But also I think this should make you see your obedience in a new light. Every time you obey God, you are making a subversive act of declaring the majesty of God. In a society where we... If you imagine for a moment, just imagine like the universe as a, as a diagram and just think, at the center of the universe is the majestic splendor, the glory of the Lord. Uh, one of my, um, I was reading the Bible with some uh, non-Christians, my salt group, and we looked at Genesis 1. We looked at the creation story and uh, one of them said, when I see this actually feels very intimidating. To see this idea of the power at the centre of the universe like this is actually a really intimidating prospect. And I think that's right. That's how you should feel a sense of awe. But so imagine for a moment the centre of the universe, this great power. The, we live in a society that is ignoring that great power and majesty. That is that is that is just kind of going about its business without any reference to that great glory. And as you obey him, as you live under his authority, as you recognize and follow his commands, you, even without saying anything, are pointing to that majesty and glory by your obedience. Every act of obedience is a subversive act of declaring the majesty and glory of God with your very bones. Every time you choose to please God and not man, every time you reject and say, I'm not going to worry what that person thinks, I'm going to be faithful to God, you are declaring the majesty of God with your life. That's the great call, recognize the supremacy of God. But the, I think the question, the kind of question when we look at this passage is, will everyone who experiences this moment of judgment, everyone who stands under the, the, t- the house and looks at the hail destroying uh, the land, would everyone respond by, by recognizing God's glory and majesty? And the answer, of course, is no. Pharaoh resists it. You have to see the foolishness of Pharaoh's proud resistance of God. He stubbornly and proudly resists God's authority. Now, in one sense, he represents satanic opposition to God's purposes. And we could, I think I mentioned one of the earlier weeks, the idea that, that Pharaoh is almost like the embodiment of Satan in this story. But in one sense, in another sense, he's every man. He stands as a warning. Do not proudly resist the glory of God because you will one day face judgment if you do. You have to see Pharaoh's pride. You can see it just littered all the way through this story, right from the first plague when um, in chapter 7, at the end of the plague, he said um, he did not even take this to heart. He sees the Nile turn to blood and he just kind of dismisses it. He just walks back in his house. He just ignores this great calamity. Apart from anything else, he shows no care for his own people, but you can see the pride just kind of dismissing it. You can see it in Moses' response in chapter 9 when he says, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. You have to see that every time Pharaoh says no, again and again and again, 11, 12 times more than that, it's it's a kind of declaration of his own glory. He's saying, I am the one who has the right to, to tell these people what to do, not this living God. You've got to see his pride in that. You've got to see it in his willingness to, to deceive God. A number of miracles, including the hail miracle, he, um, he actually says he's going to do it. He says, okay, 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 I'm st- I'll stop. And then as soon as the Lord relents, he goes back on his word. He's, he thinks he can deceive God. He thinks he can trick God. Of course, we know that God is not mocked. But no man can deceive God and live like this. See Pharaoh's response in chapter 10, at the end of the complete des- desecration and destruction of his people <laughs> He 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 gets angry with Pharaoh and as and, uh, with Moses, sorry, and it says chapter ten, verse twenty-eight, then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again. From the day you see my face, you shall die. Just think about the arrogance of that. He's just watched his whole civilization be absolutely decimated. Surely he's seen that this is the great Lord who has the power over life and death. And at the end of the story he says. I'm going to kill you. Like, effectively, he's completely, like, look around yourself, mate. You're, you've got no power of life and death. Quite the opposite. See his pride. And I think what I want to point you really is the danger of pride in this story. We see the, the great sobering reality. Of course, he's, I mean, you can see this, the danger of pride for those who aren't Christians and for those who are Christians. For those who aren't Christians, you can kind of see Pharaoh as a kind of extreme version of the defiant atheism of our culture that says, you know, remember when Stephen Fry was kind of like um, talking, he was interviewed by an Irish uh, journalist who basically kind of said, what will you say to God? And Stephen Fry was like, you're evil. You're like, you know, does it talk about disease? I can't, I don't do the quote justice, but the sense to which almost like we judge God, not God judges us. And to which I think you'll say when you're going to face the living God, you're going to see his authority and his judgment. Quite the opposite. It's not going to be you judging him, it's him judging you. Unbelief may feel innocent enough, but actually, ultimately, when the cookie crumbles, it's a refusal to acknowledge and submit to the great glory and majesty at the center of the universe. Now, you might say, I wouldn't disbelieve if I saw this. If I was Pharaoh, I would have, you know, if you're not a Christian, you say, if I'd seen this, I would have submitted to God. To which I think God would say, actually, you don't need more signs. What you need is a change of heart. In Psalm 19, he says, uh, the, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In a sense, Pharaoh is given a kind of a, a very intense vision of the glory of God. But actually, every day when you step out into the, in the world and you see the beauty of creation or you see the beauty of the heavens, the, the stars. Okay, there are no stars above our skies in London, but you know what I mean. Remember, remember when you lived somewhere where you saw the stars, um, you see his glory. You see his majesty. That's the kind of intrinsic response, saying you've seen his glory. Submit to him, recognize his authority. You know, there in um, Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story of Lazarus and the rich man. And this rich man is facing judgment because uh, he's away from God, he's in, uh, separated from God in hell because of the way, it, well, we won't go into the, the full story, but he basically says, look, send Lazarus back to my brothers to tell them, to warn them. And Jesus says, no, if they they didn't accept the testimony of Moses, if they didn't accept the testimony of what I've said, then they won't accept more. They don't need more signs. What they need is a change of heart. See the danger of pride that is driving Pharaoh. And what I want to say, really, if you're not a Christian, is you have to see the, the way that your pride may stand in your way of coming to recognize and follow God. The desire to exalt yourself, the desire to um, be recognized and to be ultimately to be the sovereign of your life will, ch- will stop you coming and recognizing who Jesus is. In a sense, you know, when you think about the, the spiritual search, and I, my, my great privilege, one of my uh, greatest joys in my role is I get to spend time talking to people who are exploring uh, God and everything else like that. Is You may feel that um, the biggest barrier to belief is evidence or is... Um, Sexual, the Christian sexual ethic, or all sorts of things. Actually, the greatest barrier is the intrinsic pride in the heart of every man. The, the, will you submit to him? Will you allow him to be the authority of your life? That, I think, is the great barrier. So the clarifying question for anybody who's looking into Christianity is, if this was true, if it is true that God is real, that he loves you, that he died, sent his son to die for you, and desires that you be in relationship with him, if that was true, would you submit to him? Would you allow him to be the authority of your life? That is the clarifying question that everybody must ask themselves. But it's but I want to... So we talked about the non-Christian. Actually, this is really dangerous for the Christian. What we see in fair, If it was dangerous for somebody who's not a Christian, I'd suggest it's even more dangerous for the Christian. The idea of a proud Christian should be a kind of contradiction in terms. But we know it's not. We know that actually sometimes religion does the very opposite, that it kind of baptises your pride in a sense that it kind of... You allow your a sense of religiosity to... Um, Come along your own kind of petty grievances, and suddenly your own opinion, combined with kind of what you think uh, God's authority, kind of becomes a, a way of even looking down on others and judging others. And you see, so often religion uh, comes alongside pride. I mean, that's really dangerous. Among any, among other things, it's dangerous because you become a practical atheist. If you if you when you because of the pride that's lurking within each Christian's heart, I suspect. We naturally say to God, I can do this on my own. I don't need you. And of course, what happens? You fall over when you do that. Or, or because of that pride, there's an unwillingness to recognize our own sin, which again is so dangerous because it's only by kind of experiencing the, the illuminating light of God's truth into our hearts and recognizing our own sin that we grow, that we change. Without that, we're, we're done for. We're going to live in, with blind spots. I mean, we, all, we do have blind spots, but we're going to kind of live without really ever Changing or becoming more like the person that God wants us to be. Pride is such a barrier, such a danger in the Christian life. I mean, of course, I think we've got to say here is that also beware the hidden vanity, beware the hidden pride. I see this in myself all the time. Just it's it's there in my heart. I kind of disguise it. I mentioned before you're having a discussion and you're saying, I'm arguing for what I believe in. Or maybe I'm just arguing because I want to be right. How often it is to kind of deny the pride within our hearts. But most of all, I think this story says your pride is ridiculous. That's what this story says. It says, actually, look at Pharaoh and his pride. It's ridiculous when, when he's faced with the majesty of the living God. You have no reason to be proud, Pharaoh, because you're nothing compared to him. And I think to which we say our pride is ridiculous. How often we live in a world that kind of puffs up the self, self-actualization, self-expression. We've kind of all been told that we are the center of the universe. And to which he says, no, you're not. You're a little bit puny, insignificant piece of flesh that will die within probably 100 years of when you, when you came to live in the, on this earth. Pride is ridiculous. But we must go further and hear the warning of judgment in this story as well. There's a warning implicit in this story, a warning that says, judgment awaits those who resist God's majesty. In Galatians chapter six, there are some really sobering words. It says, God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We see this in this story says God will have the last laugh against those who reject him. says even destruction awaits them at the very least, probably more. Beware of false repentance, this says, like Pharaoh. You know, see how Pharaoh kind of conveniently pretends to turn to the living God, but then turns away from him. And I think this is particularly true in Christianized cultures. So less of a concern in this country, but I think in other cultures, much more of a concern of the kind of veneer of religiosity. Of going to church because it's the right thing to do, or doing the thing that's acceptable, a kind of a little bit like Pharaoh. Kind of, yeah, I'll do the right thing, or maybe sin hurts, so I'll, I'll kind of comply with God. But actually, your heart's not in it. You don't really love God. This whole story is all about Pharaoh's heart. We could do a whole sermon just on Pharaoh's heart. It says the matter, what matters, is your heart towards the living God. That is the ultimate thing that God wants—not your veneer of religiosity. No, He wants your heart to beware false repentance hear the warning of judgment but then we might say where's the hope where's the hope in this story jeremy well the answer is every time we see the reality of judgment we see the mercy of god and we see it in this passage first of all we see it in the mercy of judgment we see the fact these early plagues are meant to be a warning that you need to hear before you get to the end plagues. Pharaoh should have stopped at plague one. He shouldn't have, or maybe when, hit the big, when, hit, when Moses and Aaron's snake ate his snakes, he should have seen the supremacy of God then. He's saying, hear the warning, hear the mercy of judgment, because actually when you see judgment, it's meant to, meant to humble you. Actually, judgment has mercy in it in this case. Is worse to come. Don't make the same mistake as Pharaoh and ignore this warning. But also, I think there's an even more intrinsic point here that judgment always speaks of God's mercy. They're inextricably linked through the person of Christ. Every time we see the judgment of God, it should actually remind us of the grace of God. Both as we're sobered by the warning here, we should be also rejoicing that every time we see judgment in the Bible, we are reminded that Christ took that judgment on himself for us. That every, As we see this great kind of intimidating moment meeting out of Pharaoh, we think, because of Christ, we will not receive this judgment if we believe in him and trust in him. That's why, you know, the end, the last plague, the 10th plague, which we'll come on to next time, Christ, uh, in in short, it's the death of the firstborn son in Israel. And what's fascinating is Christ, who is elsewhere described as kind of the firstborn son, it's almost like Christ's death on the cross is a um, recapitulation of this moment. The innocent son takes on the judgment for us. So what you've got to see, and this is really fascinating, is when you see Pharaoh in this moment, he's the great anti-hero who points to the great hero. When you see Pharaoh, actually he points to Christ because Christ is the very opposite of Pharaoh. And you see this all the way through. You see how Pharaoh is proud and stubborn. What is Christ? Humble and obedient. Humble enough to take his place from the right hand of the Father and to die humiliated on the cross. Um, humble enough and obedient to the Father in everything he does. He's the very opposite of Pharaoh in that way. Pharaoh is utterly opposed to the glory of God. Christ is entirely for the glory of the Father and his own glory. He, he, by his obedience, he brings glory to the Father. Pharaoh is unwilling to face judgment. He is resisting judgment. Christ takes on judgment willingly for us. Christ bears judgment. Pharaoh brings suffering through his evil. As he resists, he brings suffering on his people. Christ, through his goodness, through his obedience, brings flourishing. It's one more, maybe. Christ brings No, that's it, maybe. Oh, yeah, that's it. Pharaoh is the epitome of evil and sin. He's the very definition of that. Christ is the very definition of goodness. Isn't it incredible? Even in this moment, as we see Pharaoh's great depravity and evil, we see Christ's beauty. This story speaks of of one great hero. As we see the anti-hero bringing destruction and facing judgment, we we know that the hero will one day, or has, brought uh, liberation. This story is a story of liberation and has brought, brought judgment on himself so that we might flourish for eternity with God. Isn't that incredible in this story? So see the foolishness of Pharaoh's pride. Hear the reality of judgment for those who resist God's authority. But see the beauty of Christ in this story. See in this story that, in a sense, we all have a mini-Pharaoh within each one of us. But Christ came to kill that man and to make us beautiful like him, to make us the very opposite of Pharaoh. But if we see these two principal actors in this story, we see the beauty and supremacy of God, the majesty of God, we see the the evil of Pharaoh and his stubborn pride, then surely the pregnant question in all of this then is, What do we do with this? And this is, again, back to that point in the beginning. There's a battle within each one of us. Will we acknowledge the glory of God? But it's not enough just to intellectually recognize the glory of God. Actually, the whole Christian life is living for the glory of God. Remember I said at the beginning, God could have ended this quickly. He could have done it in a moment, but he doesn't do that. He shows that he he takes a longer time to do it because his ultimate purpose See in verse sixteen, but for Chapter nine, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all excuse me in all the earth that is why he 's doing this. God is passionate for his glory, and so we brothers and sisters are called our number one purpose that makes that kind of shapes every other purpose of our lives is to display to recognize enjoy the glory of God to live for the glory of God what you've got to see is this is not an isolated incident this is God's great heart to display his glory to the world this is why the creation exists at some level that's why that's why that when the bird is tweeting as you walk down the road actually that that bird as it tweets is giving glory to God in once in some sense because as you as you see the beauty of God's creation you're meant to feel a sense of God's glory in a sense that everything exists, almost without, without doing anything, the rest of creation gives glory to God. Just by being, just by doing its thing, as the bird does things and whatever, every other animal does its thing, it's pointing to the glory of God. And actually, you remember, humanity has a particular purpose. What is humanity? What's special about humanity? We're made in the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it's like each person is a mirror. An image of the living God. Each person is meant to ultimately point, not to their own glory. No, to point to the glory at the center of the universe. That we are meant to, in a sense, be a kind of hall of mirrors pointing to the ultimate glory and majesty at the center of the universe. That is the ultimate purpose of our lives. Now, I think when someone asks it, when you hear this, you might think, is God some kind of evil tyrant Is he kind of an egomaniacal maniac that he's about his glory? Is he like Pharaoh, in a sense, in this story? To which we say, no, he's completely different. Why? Because, well, first of all, if you recognise the splendour and majesty of God, the the last thing God could do is not be about his own glory. Because when you see his glory, the only thing you can do is is recognise that and worship it. So if God was to deny his own glory, that would be like fundamental contradiction to his character to his glory in itself that's the first reason but the second reason is we are most satisfied when god is glorified we glorify god primarily or at least principally i think by enjoying him it's not that we are all about god's glory and therefore not about our own happiness now as we live for the glory of god as we live to point to his glory as we enjoy him as we recognize his goodness to us we are pointing to his glory and majesty the two are not in contradiction Christians are not pro the glory of God and anti-happiness, meaning that we find our deepest joy in the living God. And in doing so, we glorify him. Of course, the problem is we know humanity doesn't live for the glory of God. Humanity lives, lives for its own glory. We saw that. I mentioned that. The European Super League, the billionaires, the ambition. Let, let us make a name for ourselves. We see that all the way through, patterned in our society. We see it in our own hearts, hungry for the glory of man rather than the glory of the Lord, looking for praise and adulation, might just be myself, but maybe you can relate, man-pleasing, approval addicts, living for what other people think, living for the glory that comes from man and not living for that great glory. What this says is your ambition is too small. Your ambition is too small. Don't focus on your own puny glory. Instead, focus and point to that great glory of God. God should transform our orientation, that we live for the glory of God, that praise and honour of God becomes our central ambition, that shapes everything we do. How do we do this? Well, we we talked about obedience. By obeying him, you display his majesty. Worship, when we come in together on Sunday, we're declaring the majesty of the living God. You're joining with the crowns of angels who recognise that. But actually, this should shape every part of your life, 1 Corinthians says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. So actually this is not primarily, although I think this will have implications for how you live your life and what you do, but it's actually more about a kind of lens by which you approach every every part of your life. Am I doing this for the glory of God? What do I mean by that? Well... I've always loved the analogy where one writer spoke about the idea of, as you drink a glass of orange juice, you're enjoying God's providence to you. You're enjoying his goodness, his provision for you. As you just taste it and think, wow, this is awesome. Thank you. You're thanking God. As you go to sleep and you put your head on the pillow at night, you're and you say, God, thank you for this gift of sleep, thank you that I don't have to worry about the day that I'm a mere mortal and I can sleep now and you're in charge of the universe, you're glorifying God. As you enjoy every single gift, every part of life, as you work, as you work not to build your own empire or to puff up your own name, but instead as you work uh, in creative joy, you point to the one who created the universe. Every part of your life can be done with a posture and attitude of glorifying God. As you reflect and image his character. I think about my role as a father, but I think this goes for mothers as well. I recognise that my job is to display God to my children. I realise that as a father, the way I act will be the, the thing that shapes what my children believe about the character of God. What a weighty but really challenging call for us as parents to display the character of God in how we parent our children. I think about you as a, in your workplace as you think about how do you relate to your colleague. Are you displaying the love of Christ? Are you displaying the countercultural uh, Christ-like spirit that's been placed inside you if you believe and follow Christ? We share it in our behavior, in our holiness. Remember that this is the Lord who does not mix himself with sin. He, he is holy and righteous. Do we display that same character of God? Are we that mirror that points to the holiness of God? I think it even means that we have a desire to spread his fame. See, in, in uh, one of the other miracles, um, he speaks about how he's not a local deity. He's kind of among them. And this is obviously news for the Egyptians because they're like, I thought it was just our guys. And he's like, No, I'm here. Th- I'm here. None of these guys are real, but I'm here. The point is, God is not a local deity. He's not a, like just for us as Christians. He is a God who de- whose desires his name to be known among the whole earth. So it's right that every Christian lives for, with a desire for the fame of the Lord. This is so easy to forget this idea of glorifying God, I think the, the ultimate way we do it is by coming and imbibing and tasting and chewing over and observing, beholding the glory of the Lord. The more we behold the glory of the Lord, the more we see his majesty, the more we are drawn and driven towards wanting to point and display that glory to the whole world. So I want, as I close, just to kind of leave you with the overall picture here. We are reminded by the reality of judgment. We are reminded about the evil of a proud and stubborn resistance to the living God. We are reminded of the mercy of God, even as we hear that judgment. But most of all, we are given a great and glorious revelation of the majesty and glory of God. The reality of his glory. And so, brothers and sisters, the simple answer, the simple kind of takeaway from all of this is, will you live to display and enjoy that glory for the rest of your days? That is the central question that these great acts of glory, these miracles, ask us. Will we live to display and point to the glory and majesty of the Lord? That is the central calling for our lives. Will you take that with me? Will you embrace that calling with me? Let me pray. The guys are going to come and lead us to respond. Lord, we just want to, again, just come and kneel at your throne. Recognize your abundant majesty, your supremacy. We want to renounce idolatry in our hearts. We want to just like marvel at your creative power. Just as you have the power to destroy, we know you have the power to create. We know that you're the only one who has authority over life and death. And so we want to come and kneel before you to see and taste and just like remind ourselves as we worship now of your majesty and glory. Would you sear that on our hearts today as we worship you? Would we see your terrifying judgment and know that we don't want to mock you? We don't want to trivialize the call to obedience We want to say you have every part of our lives. You're totally sovereign and we submit to you. We glorify your name. We pray as we hear that great calling to glorify with you with every part of our lives. Pray that we would do that, Lord. Pray that we would point to you. And pray that ultimately we would enjoy you. We would taste your goodness. We would remember the great hero who came after the anti-hero, Christ himself, given for us. We just want to remember your goodness now as we worship, as we take communion. And as we do that, Lord, would we taste your goodness and enjoy and point to your glory, your beauty, your splendor, and your majesty.